Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. On this episode, Brian talks with historian Mark David Spence about Native Americans in Yellowstone. Uh, hi there, I'm here with Mark David Spence. Uh, he's a historian, consultant, and a visiting professor in the Oregon University system. His work through his company, HistoryCraft, largely involves historical studies for the National Park Service. He wrote, Dispossessing the Wilderness, Indian Removal, and the Making of the National Parks, which are available on Amazon and wherever else you can uh, buy books. So, Mark, thank you very much for uh, spending time with us today. How are you? I'm fine. My pleasure. Thanks for taking an interest. So, no, we, we are interested. You know, our perspective is, uh, you know, we're an, we're an East Coast family, um, and so when we when we visit the parks, and, and maybe this is shame on us, but uh, we just don't think of what came before the parks. You know, in our minds, sometimes our assumption is a beautiful piece of land. Someone had the foresight to 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 mark it off as a national park, and it's there for us to enjoy. But of course, there's much more to that story, isn't there? Yeah, and that's uh, there's much more, and that's. Um, that's what makes it interesting is, um, you know, to be a visitor and, and have assumptions and then have those assumptions confirmed is not nearly as interesting as it, as it would be to, um, to sort of engage with people, uh, to engage with their stories, engage with their understanding of the place you're visiting. And so that's, um, I'm not chastising you. I'm sort of saying, you know, large, uh, a primary motive, uh, behind, the work that led to the book you were referencing earlier is that, that these are storied landscapes. Some of the stories are tragic, but most of the stories are, are not because they're thousands of years old and they, and they continue and persist. No, you know, it, and, and no offense was taken whatsoever. The, it's actually been a recurring theme that we didn't anticipate in this project, this podcast series, as we've traveled around to the parks. Um, there's been a couple themes that have popped up, but one is kind of the prehistory of the of the park, and whether it's Shenandoah and the removals of of a lot of the Scott Irish that were were in Shenandoah, or mm-hmm. some of the native peoples down in St. John and the Virgin Islands, and of course you know Yellowstone here that and or in in um, Zion what we learned is that the petroglyphs are are so under attack that the Park Service won't tell you where the petroglyphs are in the backcountry, even though they're, they're around and they're apparent because they're so worried about uh, defacing of the petroglyphs. So the constant theme for us is that the history is interwoven into the experience of the park. And so that's why we thought it was important to talk to you, especially with one as iconic and large as Yellowstone. Um, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll just start from there. What, what were some of the tribes around Yellowstone? And then what's a brief history of the U.S. government and um, and their relationship with the Native Americans in and around Yellowstone? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll begin with sort of a technical reference. The, the Park Service, since, since the 1990s, has uh, maintained uh, nation-to-nation relations with federally recognized tribes, and uh, or every park unit does. And Yellowstone maintains relations with, for consultations or simply uh, uh you know, sort of the equivalent of a press notice, we're about to be doing this in the park with about two dozen uh, Native nations. And, um, but some of those groups, their associations with the park are stronger or more, more persistent and continuing than they are for others. 
um, one group that people uh, often uh, one one group with a particularly strong ancient connection is would be the Kiowa, who are down in Oklahoma now, and um, they have uh, they've got uh, and they also have a strong association with Devil's Tower as well. But this is this is uh, pre-equestrian. It even you know probably goes back five, six, seven hundred years, and even even longer. These are people that, that likely came out of the east slope of the of the area, the east slope of the Rocky Mountains up in Canada, and sort of moved uh, with climate changes. They came deeper and deeper. It was more and more southerly uh, along the plains, and, and in particular the mountainous areas of the plains. So the Kiowa have an ancient association. Uh, the Nez Perce or Nimipu in, um, whose primary reservations in Idaho. There, uh, they have sort of more, their association is more of, of people in transit. That is, they would be, they would be moving across the Rocky Mountains to, to hunt bison. And this is in the equestrian era on the, uh, the, the western, northwestern plains. I, I could cite a ton of groups, but but the ones with the very the, the ones with the tightest uh, and then historical that is into the present uh, association with Yellowstone would be the the Crow or the Absalica, uh, and and all of these native groups were in various divisions. There's a group referenced as the Mountain Crow, which is to say they lived further up the Yellowstone Valley, mm-hmm. and um, They've got multiple place names, uh, spiritual sites, fasting sites, vision, what you'd call vision quest sites, uh, food procurement sites and the like inside of Yellowstone, but especially around the north and the east uh, of the present boundaries of the Yellowstone National Park. And I'll, and just, I should make an aside, I mean, national parks are geographic abstractions. Yellowstone is just a square right. inside of a square state. And so... That's why you've got so much overlapping, and 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 the Absalica would have a lot of connections, but some of them might be one mile outside of the park. Right. Um, so jurisdictionally, it's a little different. The other group with a very tight connection um, <clears throat> is a Shoshonean group, and the Shoshone, as well as the Paiute, identify themselves primarily by uh, a significant food resource. And the groups that would have lived year-round in the Yellowstone area in a historic period, and, and no doubt probably for thousands of years, was a group that refer to themselves as Tukarika, and that is the just means sheep eaters. They, they were the people that hunted and cured and utilized um, the body parts of, of, of mountain sheep and our bighorn sheep. The um, And they have sort of Splintered out to a couple different reservations. Most of them run the uh, eastern um, eastern Shoshone Reservation in the Wind River. Others are on the Fort Hall Reservation in Idaho. Uh, the Blackfeet to the north uh, sort of had an I don't want to say tenuous, but but Yellowstone was sort of in the southern area that they southernmost area that they utilized. And the Blackfeet's main relations were actually in Canada. So these are sort of northern and eastern oriented people, and Yellowstone would be the closest, uh, the further south, they would sort of regularly move along the, along the spine of the Rockies. Um, so those, I mean, so those are some of the groups, Eastern Shoshone, uh, Bannock, uh, who are Northern Paiute people who became, uh, who became equestrian. So they started moving across the mountains more often. Right. Um, the, the, po- the point is a lot of groups, <laughs> but the, the, those are the ones with the strongest association and, and the Crow who, 
are on the Yellowstone River still are, are the ones that would have had sort of the, the most persistent or broadest range of an annual cycle of use within the park area. And so once the idea of the park came into view, can you give a brief history of the U.S. government's treatment of the tribes and its subsequent removal? Well, the um, tech in Yellowstone, it was more a case of exclusion um, because there wasn't there was removal of one resident group, but in a sense, that was also exclusion. Um, not that I mean to differentiate from that, but it's not like removal from a reservation. It's not as if, say, it's it's a group with a reservation in Ohio in 1820, and then they're removed to Oklahoma. Um, but so Yellowstone is established in 1872, and this, there's sort of multiple things going on in the West right after, the, you know, in the, in the decade after the Civil War. One is the federal government is trying to organize this landscape, and that's where you get the grid, and that's where you, where you ultimately wind up with square circles, and I mean, square circles, square states, and the like. Um, the other is they are rapidly trying to work through treaties with Native peoples in the, the Missouri River Basin, and and what that is, uh, what that's trying to do, is they're trying to organize the landscape. We, they're trying to bound American Indian communities, and they're trying to bound other areas. But the primary motive behind that is transcontinental rail lines, and you you need to land needs to be you know, legally or technically rather, if legally is a fudgy word technically acquired from Native peoples for it to become part of the public federal public domain. And then once it's part of the federal public domain, it can be surveyed and sold uh, to private individuals or retained and gifted to uh, railroads and the like. So in that process, the the ideas of setting Yellowstone apart, that is, it would be acquired from Native peoples, or it's part of this area to be acquired from Native peoples, but it is um, not going to go into the disposition process. That is, it'll be surveyed, but it won't be surveyed in order to be transferred into the realm of private property. Uh, sure. So I think what we're looking at here is a uh, the, a complicated process by which uh, there was not one widespread, there was no trail of tears, it sounds like, but it, it was kind of a slow accruing process based on other factors in the park, like the Transcontinental Railroad, where, where suddenly the the native people's hold on the land has started to erode slowly but right. surely. Is that is that a fair characterization? Exactly, and it's not it's not a it's not a crystal clear process. These are vast expanses of land where the lines are. Um, so, in the midst of that, and, and so that's that's the world in which it's. It, it's this world of organizing the landscape, which over time, within a decade or two, sort of the categories of this organization process will be defined. And one is we will organize uh, recreational or um, uh, symbolic nature. That will be national parks. We'll organize Indian reservations. So Indians will have their place. Nature will have its place. Mm-hmm. Railroads will have their place. Industry will have its. Residents will have it. So it's, it's the door. The, the federal government is organizing the landscape and, and people and resources are essentially being placed around a game board in a way. 
Right. And right. Uh, even though some of those pieces may be living on top of one another, right? And so that's that's kind of the challenge that we're that you're speaking yeah. to. Right, exactly. And it, it, it's like trying to sort of dissect the river and say, you know, this right. portion of the flow belongs to these people. Um, but in the process of, esta- of, of establishing uh, relationships, uh, you know, formal treaty-based relationships with Native peoples, in 1868, there had been a period of warfare had ended. I'm sorry to bounce around, but this is a very complicated story. But also, uh, say, 15, 20 years earlier, also in the Columbia Plateau area, which is to say Oregon, Idaho, Washington, uh, Native peoples pushed. They, they, they said, we're, we're ceding land, which is what they're saying, is, is you can live on this land, mm-hmm. but we will not cede to you our right to hunt and fish and do all the things we do on this land, except for the areas that ultimately become private property. Right. And, uh, and and so rivers and mountains and the like generally don't become private property. So that, in the Yellowstone area, that pro- that those treaties were established in 1868. And so Native peoples are moving in and out of Yellowstone. I, I mean, the, the boundaries mean nothing. And they're moving in and out through the 1870s. So to get to the question of, well, how were they removed? Um, they were removed by the Army, which was saying, this this is a park. Um, you, you people need to understand, this is a park. It's our park. These are, these are, this is our national wonderland, um, and the railroads. And you can't have tourists if tourists are afraid of, of marauding native peoples. Right. So, um, you know, I, I describe in, in, in my book, in the chapters on Yellowstone anyway, that the first managers of Yellowstone National Park were the U.S. military. And the first, you know, Gatlin gun in a national park was in Yellowstone. So there were, uh, fortified, Basically, management was a fort, you know, was fortification, and the army would make patrols trying to keep native people from coming in and hunting, coming in and engaging with tourists and the like. So, and then the most famous case is when the Nez Perce um, comes through in the late 1870s. Is there the famous story that's associated with Chief Joseph and, and their? They're trying to avoid removal from Oregon, but they wind up trying to make an escape to Canada, and that brings them into Yellowstone, and that sort of becomes the last straw for for park managers. It's, you know, we cannot have migratory parties. Some of them prepared, some of whom are prepared for war, moving through our national park, and so the boundaries of Yellowstone become far more rigid in terms of who can be in, who cannot be in, and what can be done there. Um, basically rules about what is done in Yellowstone occur in that context. I think the last residents sort of pulled out of Yellowstone, and I literally have to go back to my book to get this, would have been uh, 1882. And that was that was sort of the point where you know, the federal government is saying everybody has to be on a reservation now. You, you can't be up here. And those would have been the Tukurika, the sheep eaters. Um, also in the you know, in the 1890s, uh, Bannock and Shoshone from Idaho were coming down and hunting in Jackson Hole. Right. Uh, they're hunting elk in Jackson Hole. The bison were gone, so elk became a very important uh, protein resource. And, you know, the option would stay on the reservation and starve or go hunt in the places that they had treaty rights to hunt. What is extreme, it's extremely important, um, Supreme Court case, Ward v. Racehorse came about, and essentially what it uh, what it dictated, it dictated a couple things. One is that uh, Native peoples uh, 
could not leave their reservation, that the, the, the federal government could restrict them on their reservations. Um, and it could, and, and it also said they were not allowed to cross into Yellowstone National Park and they were not allowed to hunt in Yellowstone National Park because it was a national park. And, and then they even stretched that further. They said, even though Congress said nothing about it in 1872, um, Congress would not have wanted them to go in there. And, and therefore, since Congress <laughs> created the national park and, and we assuming that 20 years earlier, they would not have wanted native peoples to come in there and, 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 but didn't have to say so, the Supreme Court came up with this further element called plenary authority, which is to say the, the federal government can change treaty rights whenever it wants to. Wow. Um, and so this, this effort to, uh, and that's the sort, that's the thing that native peoples have been pushing against that every time they're getting increased acknowledgement of treaty rights or, 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 uh, or, or, or achieving the ability to further exercise their, their sovereignty. Um, that case sort of lingers in the back and chief justice Rehnquist, uh, was, a, was a, he was from Wyoming, and he, he was very familiar with this, and so Native people knew they couldn't push on that. And where this could go, in the few, there are Native peoples, apparently the Nez Perce, are thinking of uh, hunting in the park to test this stuff. Um, to, um, and, the, and that case that I cited actually was done the same week as Plessy v. Ferguson, and it was the same vote tally, nine, um, seven to one, somebody was absent. So it's basically the Plessy v. Ferguson of Indian law. So an ignoble, yeah. an ignoble week for the Supreme Court yeah. in in the 1880s sounds like, not their finest week. That's a long way to answer. That leads kind of the existing relationships with the, with the tribes, with the Native American, uh, with Native Americans, and the park today. How is how is that how is that sorted out? How is that worked out? I'll answer your question, but I'll have to start with a personal anger. When I was doing research there in the 90s, I was not welcome. Um, I found, uh, and some people still in, in the park were not interested in working with me. They didn't like the story I was, I was, I was working through. Um, that has changed, but in, a, in many respects, natural resource managers are very, very interested in what native peoples know and did and, and, and would like to do in the park. Um, some of the administrators or this is just a complication they'd rather not deal with. Um, since the mid nineties, however, there have been changes in basically how the federal government deals with native peoples. The one is this nation to nation. Every federal agency has to have a nation to nation relationship that in consultation and collaboration with, with federally recognized tribes. So that's improved a lot. NAGPRA has improved a lot because if you're coming across anything that has to do with a burial or, or specific mm-hmm. uh, cultural significance, you've got to be dealing with the tribes. So all of that has created a groundwork, uh, or, or a structure rather, around which relationships can occur, and they are they're improving. Um, but it's for Native peoples, it's always a question of how far can we, uh, how much can we reclaim, how much sovereignty can we exercise. So it's it's not a push and pull, but there's but there's different agendas heading in slightly different directions. Well, what what started out as a complicated notion of uh, uh, and putting an abstract over it, you know, having rigid park boundaries where you have tribes flowing in and out. It sounds like here we are in 2017, and you still have some of that same notion. There's no there's no rigidity to the relationships, and and a lot of this is ebbing and flowing, but you know, based on what's happening, what's happening in that given week. So it's a, it's still a complicated story to tell. Yeah. 
how should one feel about this if you're kind of the typical family like we are and we're there, I want to go fly fishing in the Gallatin River, hiking around Mammoth Terraces, it's vacation. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, I want to be cognizant of of the legacy there. How do you how do you approach that since you work so closely with it? How should we think about this? Um, it's a really good question. And I mean, I don't, I'm not, I, I'm not going to suggest people's feelings or, or thought processes, but, but how do you take feel? into it? How, how do you deal with it? Um, well, I, I'm of, of variously mixed indigenous ancestry. So when I was a kid going into the national parks, I, I, going, I did, there was a part of them that didn't commute or compute. Right. So, um, but I, and, and I'd actually spent time overseas and I'd been in places called national parks that people lived in. And it was this sort of, I'm trying to, um, anyway, to the way I understand it, but the thought processes I think that are, that are not thought process, but, but ideas to keep in mind that are important. One is, um, Yellowstone early on was, and basically, in order to make tourists feel safe, is to say this is not a place Native peoples used. In fact, they were afraid of the geysers. So there's this there's this initial myth, um, or not initial myth, initial story that's basically promulgated to make people feel safe. But more importantly, older and deeper under that, and this is something I think any uh, you know multi generational uh, non indigenous resident of the United States or family of the United States would understand pretty clearly is that wilderness is a wilderness is pure wilderness is is the world as God intended it to be and it is the process that God set in motion for the world Mm -hmm. and so to go to Yellowstone is to see the the original conditions of nature the the pristine primal conditions of nature and the assumption is those are pre-human and so to go, uh, and then overlaying that is Yellowstone is a national symbol. It's, it, it's iconic. And so right. you're, you're going to wilderness because, and why do you go there? Because the United States is a nation crafted from wilderness. And so we get in touch with the material, sort of the divine and the physical material out of which America is, ble- you know, America built itself out of which it's blessed. And then over that is the notion, or, you know, overlaying that again is the notion that and we've screwed up a lot of the planet so I can get, or the continent. So I can, I can get to the real stuff here. Mm-hmm. So it's a pilgrimage. It's a, it's a nationalistic pilgrimage. It's a spiritual pilgrimage. It's, and you know, just like any religious pilgrimage, you're, you're bringing an entire worldview to the place. And, yeah. and so the, <laughs> the place can't speak to you in a sense because you're, you're bringing this. So what's worth keeping in mind and, you know, if, if you go, you know, when you go into the hot springs basin, there's a gorgeous basin called Arrowhead Spring because a paleolithic arrowhead has been found in there. Lots of offerings, lots of indigenous offerings to this day are, you know, added to or have been deeply, you know, drifted into the deep recesses of various uh, hot springs. Um, there's a place called Wikiup Creek because there's a bunch of, there's some Wikiups uh, up there. So they're just kind of falling down sticks at this point. Um, anyway, it's, um, when you, when you begin to learn a bit about it and when you talk to native peoples, you realize it's a landscape full of stories. It's full of features that, that 
people wouldn't recognize otherwise, you know, fasting beds um, up on mountain ridges and the like. Um, it's loaded with archaeological sites. Um, so I've, 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 I've drifted away from the, que- from the question, but, but the, I guess the point is, is it's um, one thing that actually one thing to keep in mind, easy thing to keep in mind is a site called Obsidian Cliff, which is in the northwest part of the park kind of north-northeast of the Geyser Basin. And um, it's a cliff where uh, the obsidian from that cliff is found up in, has been found in uh, sort of religious sites and burial sites across the eastern two-thirds of North America. It's um, Really? And, and, and when you think of lithic peoples, people that are dealing with stone, this obsidian was basically the best material anyone could get east of the Rockies. And so it's, it's a site, it's a, you know, if you want, it's like where you would get your Swiss watches. You can get watches anywhere, but the very best, best stuff is going to be coming from Yellowstone. Right. So native peoples knew about the material. They knew that there was some mountain of glass out in the, out in the, in the Rockies and, and where it was is in now Yellowstone National Park. So anyway, you know, what to keep in mind is to realize is, is maybe to get a sense of the baggage, not the baggage, but the worldview you bring coming into the park. Right. And, and then start. And then if you, if you acknowledge there are stories I've never considered here and, and what does it mean for me to, to assume that this is an uninhabited place, but now I recognize it's inhabited. Um, and I think one question that really raises is what is my notion of nature? Because, um, nature review is, is a destination. I grew up in a sunny place and to me, snow was a destination. It's like I never lived in it. It was just something you went to. Right. And, uh, and, you know, nature is a destination where, where people move to uh, or not, where you visit. You don't stay. And that's right. what wilderness is. Uh, it's, it's a place where humans are visitors not to remain. You and know, I, I, I liked one thing you said, which was uh, when you think about the parks, you think about what they've become, especially for Americans. I, I can't speak to our foreign visitors. Uh, but for Americans, there is that notion of uh, it is a pilgrimage. Yes, it's vacation, but I like what you said about it is a pilgrimage to. I think a lot of the things that are that, that are the elements of America, right, and the good the good things, which is look what we've done. We've been able to carve out this wilderness for the citizens, but also I think, right. and, and not to get uh, too melodramatic or political, but I, I think this is where you were getting at, and I, I really liked it. But is uh when we are at our best as Americans is when not only we are acknowledging the things that we have done well, but when we're saying, you know, there's, there's some things we have not done well. And to be able to, to think about that in our pilgrimage, right. To be able to, to contemplate that in our pilgrimage, when we're at Arrowhead, uh, we're at the Arrowhead river, right. To think about that Mm -hmm. while we're fly fishing, but to think about what's come before, I think that's powerful, and I think that's what we're getting at here. What adds to your trip? It's not just your vacation when you're when you're going to a national park like Yellowstone, that's iconic. Recognizing, like you said, recognizing in your pilgrimage the weight of that history before and uh, that came before you, just adds to your trip. Right. I, I think that's. I really liked what I really liked how you characterized that. Yeah, and um, I mean one. No, and and you 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 stated it very very well. I, and you know one of the wonders of, of of the national parks is they are 
fundamentally democratic. I mean, they're expensive to get to. It creates, you know, there's, there's, they function due to leisure and disparities of wealth, but they're, they're democratic. They're not vast estates. They're not vast estates in, in, in England or something like that. So everyone can go there. Um, I guess the, and, and, you know, this maybe it's this is the this is an analogy that occurs to me, so I won't even apologize for it one way or another. But um, I grew up a Catholic kid, and when I think of this, you know, with Lourdes, and where you know these these, uh, or, you know, any of these sort of springs where um, you know where God visited a child and or or something like that, and all of a sudden the spring, you know, popped out of the rocks, and that's a pilgrimage site. You know, people mm-hmm. have been going to for many hundreds of years. That's, there's no, re- it's, it's not the question you're faced to also go, gee, I wonder what the geology of this is. How do springs work? Why would a spring be here? Right. And, and then just to assume, you know what, I'll bet people have been coming to this spring for thousands of years and right. it probably has had p- potent spiritual properties. None of that denies Catholicism, but it, but it, it enriches, it connects you, it connects you to so many more people. It connects you to hundreds of generations of people as to a singular, uh, which is a lot grander than a singular story. Um, so, and that's, that's what Yellowstone can do. And, um, and, and to recognize that it's, it's a pilgrimage place for native peoples too, but, it, but way more, uh, you know, it's far more potent. Um, it's, it's what keeps, it's what sustains them. Um, Whereas it doesn't, it, to go into to a national park can be entertaining and playful for Native peoples, but it also is, is sustaining in, in, in ways that non-Native people wouldn't uh, experience. Right. And, and it's our shared, it's to, to your point about Lourdes, it's, it's our shared humanity too, right? If, if I, as a yeah. guy, a middle-aged guy from Long Island, find the Lamar mm-hmm. Valley spectacular, um, it's probably probably pretty consistent to say, you know, someone from the Nez Perce tribe would also find it spectacular, either from a visual sense or because for them it's, look, there's um, there's food available, right? This is spectacular from a practical sense too. So that's it's it's part of that, it's part of our shared humanity and probably valuable that that we know about a lot of this. You were asking about you know how might a tourist think of it and and just try to think of an alternate scenario, which is what happens if uh, some crow. Uh, members of the Crow tribe come up in a truck and um, go out into a herd of bison and sort of separate one off and kill it and start butchering it. What, <laughs> what are the, what, what is a tourist to make of that? And, um, and, and basically that's a treaty, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a spiritual and a cultural and a material act. All, you know, it's an act that has various, significances from from feeding people to to creating materials for for religious acts and the like and it's an exercise of of national sovereignty for them and to for a tourist that that's a little dramatic but but for a tourist to try to get their head around that wow yellowstone is a place where native people can come take animals um that thwarts the whole concept of a national park but rather than reject it outright, just try to imagine why that, why might that be all right? And why might that be, make this a really extra cool park? For visitors, where should they go to see some of the traces of the Native American peoples who have passed through um, 
throughout the park and, and or is it everywhere and they should just keep their eyes open how how would you suggest um someone who wants to really make sure that they're they're seeing traces of native american peoples how should they approach yellowstone um part of it is is there the traces are pretty pretty minimal one thing you a person could do is you could just i mean if you were to google or look up native trails you know, american indian trails yellowstone national park there's uh, there's a pretty rich trail network of people moving through you know north to south east to west you know northwest to southeast parts of the park. Um, the mammoth um, the mammoth springs area in the northern part of the park. Uh, there is if you know what to look for if you're looking south into the hills ab- above that there's a thin little trace that. Um, which the Nez Perce would have used, but other groups had used. And, and I mean, it's just this gentle crease uh, in the landscape. And back up in there are some, um, what people refer to as wiki-ups, but they're basically um, the equivalent of teepee poles sort of mm-hmm. stacked, left behind, and then they would be covered in brush, you know, when, when used seasonally. Those are in different parts of the park. Obsidian cliffs, um, you know, some of the debris and detritus around the base of it, it would, some of it would be leavings from, uh, you know, from long ago. Uh, um, to, uh, but I think that the, the, the other way is just to look at it, try to look at it through different eyes. And, you know, I got to the point where I started looking, when I would look at bison, I saw my mouth would water. I'm like, oh man, that was a delicious looking animal. Yeah, and and you know, so so there's um, wh- what bison would mean. Um, there's also sites just to the southeast of the park in Shoshone uh, Gorge, which uh, you can look at a cave and go, you know, people live there residential. You know, people live there seasonally, and and down in Shoshone Gorge, people live there. Well, maybe not year round, but they cash their stuff there year round. So they're um, just think of all the places that would that look habitable, at least seasonally. Um, and if you know, and if there are climate climate change uh, tourists, you, you, you can go up to, to patches of melting snow now, and actually, uh, archaeologists are starting to find less fine materials, uh, yeah. you know, skins, uh, baskets, and things like that. So it's not an easy part. You're not going to find. Uh, I'm not aware of uh, petroglyphs technically inside the park area. Um, but from you know, speaking to Native peoples, I know there's particular fasting sites uh, that, that people would go to. And um, there is a concessionaire. I don't know what tribe they're associated with, but they sort of, they're giving tours of the general Yellowstone area. And they, really? they have a concessionaire's license you know, to, bring, to, give, to bring tours. Anyway, I appreciate the time, and uh, I appreciate the time you guys are giving this. No, this is great. So we really, we really appreciate your uh, your time as well, Mark. So uh, so thanks a lot. Uh, you know, Mark David Spence, thank you very much for for your time. This was uh, this was uh, greatly educational. I think you know, as we talked about, I think enriching for anyone visiting the park, even coming in cold like we were. Uh, this is this is great to have in your back pocket as you're walking around. So. Uh, once again, Mark sure. David Spence, and his book is Dispossessing the Wilderness, Indian Removal, and the Making of the National Parks. Thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you're very welcome. 
Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. Show notes and links to resources for this episode may be found on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, please write a review and tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks on Instagram from the parks you are visiting. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.